All right, we are uh, continuing our uh, study of Genesis, and this is the second to last week, crazy enough. Uh, so next week we'll finish uh, with the life of Abraham. And what we're saying is every week we are going back to season one, episode one of this, of this true story and seeing if the beginning and being reminded of how everything started might answer our doubts, our questions, our boredom, maybe even our confusion about God and man and what it means to be in right relationship with Him. And so as we're looking at Abraham tonight, there is only one man, it's very interesting, that in the whole Old Testament that the Bible calls friend of God. And it's Abraham. In Isaiah 41, God calls Abraham my friend. And so the God of the Bible, the real God, has such a relationship with people that it can actually be called friendship. And that should actually interest you. Because over and over again, when people graduate Mississippi State, what they say is the most important thing in their life, the thing that shaped them the most, was not necessarily teaching or something else. It was friendship. Why is that the case? Because maybe you were built for, uh, for friendship with God. Maybe that's what it comes from. And Jesus himself says to his disciples, when God comes to this earth, I've not call, I, I've called you friends. Friends. So this is the beginning. This is the first glimpse of how in the world can we, sinners, be friends with the holy, perfect, and just God. Abraham gives us a glimpse into it. So let, let's pray. Father, would you, um, and would you shine the light of your word uh, into our dark hearts, uh, into our doubts, into our pain? And uh, many of us probably can... Uh, attest to the power of friendship. Many of us have felt uh, healing amidst sorrow when friends have cried with us. Um, Many of us have felt how friends can remind us of truth when we start uh, believing lies. And so, Lord, we ask that you would uh, turn us to the ultimate uh, and eternal friend in Jesus. And uh, may may our sorrows uh, come to Jesus. Uh, may our sin come to Jesus. May, uh, may we believe tonight that you really want to be friends with us. In your son's name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, here's Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. <clears throat> For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I'll go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? 
He said, I'll not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I'll not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I'll not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I'll not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I'll speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I'll not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The psalmist says the word of God is sweeter than honey. May be that for us tonight. Okay, so there's only one man in the Old Testament called friend of God, and Abraham's the father of our faith. He's the paradigm. It's what we've been saying of how God deals with his people. We can look at Abraham, and he can show us what friendship with God looks like. So, friendship with God observed. Then the key to friendship, and I'm actually going to watch my time. If we have time, we'll do uh, what friendship lived out looks like. If not, I'm going to respect your time. So first, friendship with God observed. Okay, verse 16 through 28. I want you to see what, what God does with Abraham here. There's a guy, uh, a pastor out in California named Rankin Wilburn, who unpacked uh, the glorious meaning of this text. I'd always missed it. Uh, and, and much of this is coming from him because he sets up the paradigm that, yes, this is about judgment, absolutely. But really, really it's an exploration of God's mercy towards his friends. And so I want you to see this. I want you to see the intimacy and the sign that, that Abraham has real friendship with God. Right in verse 16, these men, and it's actually referring back to the previous verses which we haven't read, where these three men show up at Abraham and Sarah's tent, and you quickly discover that two of them are angels, and one of them is the Lord, God himself, who, who appears like a man, and they eat this, this meal with Abraham, which is always a sign of friendship. But then two other things happen. First... The Lord is actually walking with Abraham. Okay, we haven't seen the Lord walking with anyone since back in Genesis 2 when God was walking with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. It's a sign of friendship, of intimacy, of wanting to be with someone. Second, this is strange, right? In verse 17, the Lord asks a question to the angels, it appears, but loud enough so that Abraham can hear it. Right, He says, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? What is that? Right? It's an invitation. It's an invitation to Abraham. Right? We, we still do this all the time. If you're with somebody and that person says, I don't know if I should tell you this. Right? I've got something serious, something important. And it might be really tough for you to hear. What is that person doing? That person's going to tell you. I'm going to tell you that, right? But he's inviting you in. It's a sign of trust. It's a signal that I'm inviting you in to know something important. To know me, usually. And see, what the Lord is doing here, the Lord who knows all things, who knows Abraham, who knows every detail of Abraham's life, what he does here is he invites Abraham to know him. To get to know his character. Abraham is saying, I'm not going to hide what I'm about to do. Because I want you to know me. I want you to know my character. Because friendships only happen if two people are willing to be known. Right? If you hide from somebody and you put up a false image, you don't have a real friend. They don't know you. And God says, I want you to know. God opens his heart to Abraham and says, get to know me. And so what does Abraham get to know about the Lord? Well, this whole interaction that Abraham has with the Lord is a discovery 
of God's character. It's an exploration of that. Which, just a side note, will tell you one of the things about what prayer is. This is the first, this is the first long recorded prayer in the Bible. And what you see is that prayer is not first and foremost like trying to get something out of God. It's actually getting to know God's character. It's Him opening up His heart to you. And so Abraham starts doing that. And what does he discover? Well, verse 20 and 21, God lets Abraham in on the fact that he has heard this outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he is going to go investigate. He's going to see if, if, if the evidence lines up with the facts that he's heard. And, he, and if it does, he's going to bring justice. He's going to destroy it. And that word outcry, it's a, it's a, it's a term that, that's a, that comes from an act of oppression. It comes from victims who are being abused or oppressed. And, and the Lord says, I've heard it. And I'm coming. And actually, that's what whatever you think about the, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is, here's what Ezekiel 16 says. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but they did not aid the poor and needy. Isn't that amazing? What the Lord hears, here, here's what... Here's what the Lord wants Abraham to know. I care deeply about people. And there's a cry of oppression that's coming out. And I'm not going to be apathetic about it. I'm going to bring justice. And what Abraham just learned is that the Lord is holy. He is just. And that no evil goes unseen by the Lord. And he will respond. And we need to hear that. Because I think sometimes we think God... Is unconcerned about my sin on an individual level or even, even on a world level that he doesn't seem to care. But he hears and he will respond. But what else does Abraham discover? And we're going to talk about this in detail. But the whole back and forth about what about 50, what about 45, what about you know 30, what he's beginning to discover about the Lord is not only is he just, he's also incredibly merciful and gracious. Right? He keeps discovering that the heart of God is, is, is willing to show mercy. Can't wait to show mercy. He loves mercy so much that he says he's willing to spare the whole city if you can find me ten righteous people. Think about that. And so the Lord invites Abraham to know him and says, Look, I'm more holy than you think. I will always punish all sin. And yet I'm more patient, kind, and merciful than you think, Abraham. And both of those go together. And there it is. You know what friendship with God means? Friendship with God means that you know the real God. That He's opened His heart to you. And that you know that He's holy. And that He hates sin. That He's the champion of the oppressed. That He's just. And at the same time, you know He is incredibly merciful. Incredibly kind. Infinitely gracious. And that combination... That friendship with the real, holy, just, loving, gracious God, I'm telling you, it creates something utterly unique. Utterly unique. Because what it does is it creates in you humility and boldness at the same time. So the sign of being friends with God is that you have both humility and confidence at the same time, and those things normally don't go together. Only the gospel gives you those things. Right, and you see this in Abraham's prayer. On the one hand, right, he has humility. 
He knows God is just. He knows God is holy. And he knows he's not. Abraham knows he's not. So like in verse 27, he says, I'm but dust and ashes. There's this reverence, this humility that he has. In verse 30, he's saying, be not angry with me. He says that a couple times. There's this posture of humility before the Lord. He knows that if he wants to stand before God on his own record, he can't do it. He's dust and ashes. But also, did you see the boldness? Like, he speaks freely and boldly towards God. It's like he starts bargaining with him. He says, well, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What about if there's 50, 40, 30? Like, who speaks like that to God? He speaks like that to anybody. The only person I know that does this to me is my two-and-a-half-year-old Clark. Like, really, he will wake especially since Halloween, he will wake up. As soon as his foot hits the floor, he'll say, Hey, Dad, can I have some candy? It's like 6.30 in the morning. And I'm like, no, no, you can't have candy. Except when Mom's gone. And if I give him a piece of candy when Mom's gone, it's amazing. He'll just go, hey, can I have one more? Can I have one? Like, there's this, there's this boldness with, like, silly requests. Why? It's actually beautiful. He just delightfully assumes that I care about him, that I want the best for him. So he'll just ask me anything. And you realize it's like people that you're in secure relationships with, you can speak freely. And you know that. It's the people who you're not sure where you stand with them that you're always having to guard what you say. You're always, you're always kind of overthinking it. Like, ah, oh, I need to make sure about every word. But Abraham just, he speaks freely. He just assumes the Lord cares about him and loves him and will respond. And that is the unique characteristic that friendship with God creates in people. That there's humble boldness. So that's my question. Is it there for you? If you claim to be a Christian, is there humility and boldness? Because if you're humble but you're not bold, then you're probably aware of God's holiness, of His justice, and thereby your unworthiness. You just don't know His grace and His patience. And you can't get over how bad you are. And you probably struggle to be honest with, honest with God in prayer. Because you don't really know where you stand with Him. Like you feel guarded in your words. And probably God doesn't seem real to you. Because you don't treat Him as real in prayer. Some of you need to start verbalizing your doubts. Like He can handle it. Some of you need to start verbalizing your anger about the things that have been done to you. That's what you do with friends. He's real and He cares. But others of you are bold but not, not humble because you just don't know the justice and holiness of God like you should. And you just assume that you're good enough. And you probably haven't repented in a while and sin just isn't that big of a deal. So there's no amazement, no fascination that the Lord wants to be with you. That, the, that your prayers enter the throne room of God and He hears them. There's just this base note, honestly, that well... More people were like me. If people would just get their life together, the world would be better. And like when that comes out of your mouth, you, you just taste it, right? Confidence, no humility. But friendship with the real God, there's boldness and humility. Yes, in prayer and in relationships with other people. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, think about that, boldness of access. He's your Father, who art in heaven. The one in the throne room, humility, reverence. Those things go together with the real God. So that's the friendship observed. What's the key? Like how in the world 
Can you have that kind of relationship with God? How can Abraham, there's the question, who is sinful? We've seen this. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a mess. How can he be in a real friendship with the Lord who is uncompromising in holiness, who says he's going to judge the sin of Sodom? And the key is discovered in how Abraham pleased with the Lord. This is what Rankin uncorked, and it's not just him. Once he uncorked it, I read plenty of other people. But look, upon hearing that, that the Lord is going to judge and destroy Sodom, Abram just starts pleading. He starts pleading on behalf of the city. Look at the plea in verse 24. He knows the Lord has to punish and judge sin. He knows that's God's loving and holy character. But in verse 24, he, he tries something. Right? He's bold. He says, will you not spare? And that word spare is the same word for forgive, okay, in Hebrew. Will you not spare or forgive the whole city for, the, for some righteous people? Now, I want you to do better than I did than I did growing up. For the longest time, I thought Abraham was just praying for like the good people in the city, right? His 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 nephew Lot's there, uh, not Lot's family is there. So I thought what he was doing was say, "Look, just spare like my family." But that's not what he asks. He doesn't ask God to get the good people out, even though you'll hear me come back and say there are no good people. He asked the whole city to be spared. Abraham is praying that the whole wicked city of Sodom will be spared and forgiven. Not just Lot and his nephew and these other people. But he's asking that the whole city would be spared, listen to this, on account of the righteousness of a few. Isn't that strange? Here's what Abraham is suggesting, or he's trying out, you could say, let's see if this works for God. He's saying, God... You love righteousness. You value righteousness so much. Is there a chance that you could value the righteousness of of a few people so much that you would let it cover the wickedness of a whole city? And look what God says in verse 26. Yes. Yes. If I find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the whole place, the whole city for the righteous sake. So then Abraham just... Starts taking it further. 45, 40, then the big jump to 30. Then, right, don't be mad. 20, finally 10. At each point, God says, yes. Yes. God is so just that he will punish all sin. He just will. He loves, he is so loving that all sin has to be vanquished, okay? But, God so loves righteousness and so loves mercy that he says he will let the righteousness of just 10 people cover the evil and sin sin of a whole city, of thousands. That he will spare and forgive a wicked city on the account of other people's righteousness. That's amazing. And the principle that Abraham just learned, and this is the first time that starts getting pulled out, and the whole Old Testament is going to build on this. That he just pulled out the character of God in this conversation with him. Is that Abraham just shockingly learned that the righteousness, the goodness of someone else can save you. That people could be scared could be could be spared on the account of someone else's righteousness. This is incredible. But what happened? Like what happened, honestly? Didn't the end kind of seem abrupt? Like he works him down to ten, and then Abraham just goes home in despair, and, and the Lord in the next chapter destroys Sodom and he judges it. He wipes it out completely. Why did Abraham stop? 
I think this is the point. The narrative leaves you hanging. Why didn't he keep working God down? Why didn't he work God down to say, what about if there's one righteous person? Would you spare the whole city for it? I'll tell you why. Because Abraham knew there wasn't a righteous person. He knew Lot wasn't righteous. He's not. He knew he wasn't righteous. Abraham's an, an adulterer, a liar. And so verse 33 he just leaves you with this realization that the Lord would spare and cover people's wickedness on the account of another purchase righteous on account of another person's righteousness. But Abraham just realizes there's just no one that's righteous. No, not one. And so let's use our language. Wicked people can be scared, can be spared and become friends with God because of the righteousness of someone else. But Abraham discovers there's no one that's righteous. No, not one. And that principle hangs throughout the Old Testament. And Moses comes along, you think, ooh, maybe Moses can be righteous. Whoops, he doesn't get into the promised land. King David comes along, maybe he's going to be righteous. Whoops, he's a murderer and adulterer. And every time, every character in the Old Testament keeps being sinful and flawed. How can the wicked people be spared? How can wicked people be, in, be friends with God if there is no one righteous? I think you know where I'm going. Because then 2,000 years ago, a descendant of Abraham shows up. The same God who's actually talking to Abraham gets born of a virgin. He walks this earth and he executes perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness from birth to death. Always loving his father and always loving people as himself. He is pure He is righteous. And then on the night before his death, do you know what Jesus prays? Here's what Jesus prays on the night before his death. He says, Heavenly Father, love them as you love me. Look what he just said. I want you to love wicked people in the same way that you love me, the righteous one. That's what Jesus said. He says, I want wicked people to be spared. On the account of my righteousness. It's what the Apostle Paul makes explicitly clear. It's what Van read for us in Romans 5 where he says, By the one man's obedience, the many will be made or considered righteous. And Jesus goes to the cross for that reason. So that our wickedness will cover Jesus. And he gets treated as if he's Sodom and Gomorrah. Or as if he's fill in the blank, whatever you've done. And, and we get treated as if we are pure and perfect and righteous because His righteousness covers us. If you are in Him, the purity of Jesus spares, the, spares your wickedness. It covers it. That's what's being unfolded here. This is astounding. You get, so you've got to imagine the conversation going down to one and God saying, I mean, Abraham saying, would you spare the whole city on account of one, one righteous person? And God, and you got to imagine God replying, yes, if you have the right one. My son, my eternally righteous son, the righteous one. So whatever you think it means to be a Christian tonight, whatever you think it means to be friends with God, the episode of Sodom and Gomorrah is pushing you, is forcing you to believe that the way to friendship with God has nothing to do with your personal righteousness. But has everything to do with the righteousness of another person. 
And that is just supremely good news if you know yourself at all. Because some of you, honestly, like your semester, I don't know, it's just, it's been rough. It's been an exploration of the freedom of college. And you, you've probably felt some of the consequences of that. And you're here this evening, and maybe you're surprised that you're here. Maybe you're surprised at some of the things that you've done. And you think, how can a holy and just God be friends with me? How will you be spared? It is not good news if you're going to be spared according to the righteousness of your semester. It's just not. But it's good news if you can become friends with God on account of Jesus' perfect righteousness. On account of His purity. On His life and death. You enter into life with God based on Jesus' righteousness. And see, that means it doesn't matter what your week looked like. And I'm not going to like curtail it and say if, and, or but, or whatever. The solidity and purity of Jesus' righteousness is just bigger and better than whatever you put before it. So predominant is God's will to save rather than destroy and punish that He will cover your wickedness with Jesus' righteousness. And you say, what about... What about my same-sex struggles? Jesus' purity will cover it. What about I hate my parents? Jesus' righteousness and purity will cover it. What about if I lost it with my roommate this, this week? Jesus' righteousness and purity will cover it. I'm telling you, it is sufficient. It is enough. And that creates a real humility because you realize, look, I am friends with God not because I'm good, but because Jesus is good. But it creates a real confidence because you are in Jesus. So you're you're not considered worthy because you're in Christ. And I don't know, maybe, maybe that sounds too good to be true. But I think you actually know it's true. I think we know that it can be true that there can be a a corporateness that someone else's performance can cover me. You know how I know? Here's what's going to happen on Sunday morning. Now, Saturday night. Saturday night, there's going to be a party at Mississippi State, and here's going to be the mantra. We beat Alabama. (laughs) Amen. Amen. You will say, we did it. There will be a joy and a celebration because we beat Alabama. And I'll look at Austin McCann and I'll say, Austin, well, how many yards did you rush for? <laughs> be like, none. Or McPhail, how many, how many passes, you know, did you make? None. None. Like, unless there's a football player in here. Which maybe there's, if so, Hell State. You did, like, you did nothing at all. Yet, so wet are you to Mississippi State. So wet are you to Mississippi State football. That what is true of Mississippi State football becomes true of you. And you just know it. Their victory is your victory. Their loss is your loss. Christianity says, so wet are you to Jesus. That his victory over sin is your victory over sin. His death to sin is your death to sin. His perfection becomes your perfection. And you're accepted in love because you're in Jesus. That is the offer of the gospel. The only way to become friends with God is through the purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ, united to Him. That is a real and sufficient hope. That is an invitation.
I want you to taste it. I want you to see it. It's enough. Let's pray. Father, would you um, enamor us again with what you began to teach Abraham, that you will spare a whole city on account of the righteousness of another? We know even better than Abraham that you will spare and forgive a multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, and nation because of the purity and righteousness of your eternal son, Jesus. And so, Lord, you put us in the posture of humility to receive that. Would you change us? Would you, would you make RUF a community that, that, that's both humble and confident? Humble enough uh, uh, so that we don't look down on other, other people, but confident enough that we actually hate sin. We don't want anything to come between us. And Lord, would you, would you give us the heart of Jesus, the heart of Abraham that looks upon this campus and intercedes for it with prayers that Jesus can change? That Jesus can change this campus. That Jesus can, his righteousness can cover a multitude that no man can number. Would you give us real hopes tonight? In your son's name I pray. Amen.